Well, it's another week and we're studying God's Word together. And do we ever need to study God's Word, the eternal, unchanging, immutable Word of God? It is the centering, grounding reality for our lives. And I trust you're ready to dive into it. And we, we need it. We're going to talk about it. And we are going to appropriate it in our lives and get the perspective that God would have us have. So let's start with a word of prayer and then we're going to get into our weekend sermon. Pray with me, please. God, we are grateful for the chance that we have to take your word in a context of our lives in which our world is just so crazy and chaotic and, and changing and frenetic. And, and we just need the unchanging, immutable truth of your word to penetrate our hearts and minds today. So make that a reality for us as we submit ourselves to your word, as we commit ourselves even to the simple commitment and resolve to have your word transform our hearts and minds. So do that through this sermon here today in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you think about what it must have been like for Christ in his day to deal with everything that he dealt with, not just among his disciples and the Pharisees, but the culture at large. Uh, sometimes we think so idyllic about his life and we kind of picture it, just we don't fill in the details even in our imagination as what it must have been like. But the world was a crazy place in the first century. Rome had its tight grip on Israel and here comes Jesus here proclaiming the kingdom of God and telling people that they need to get right with God and that he was the means by which that would happen. And yet the world seemed like it was going crazy. And it was. And he said it was going to get worse. Uh, he certainly predicted the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. And things were going to heat up. The political scene was not tranquil. It was not calm. It was uh, terrible. Not to mention the kinds of things that don't even make the history books, but were mentioned in scripture as some of the uh, pressing and problematic and evil events of the day. So I want you to think of Christ as you turn to Luke chapter 13 and remember that there were headlines in his day that were as grievous and painful and unjust as the headlines that we read. There was so much going on in his generation that is not unlike our generation when it comes to the kinds of things that dishearten us, disrupt tranquility, that cause the kinds of chaos in their society the way it does in ours. And I know that we need to see his reaction in this passage, Luke chapter 13, the first five verses. And I would like you to consider in your Christian life whether you want to be like Christ or you want to be like the world. I want to respond to the headlines the way Jesus did. I want to think the way Christ did. I'd like to reflect the values and commitments of Jesus Christ, knowing that he dealt with a world that is fallen and painful and evil, just like ours. So let's take a look at this passage. Let me read it for you. Luke chapter 13, the first five verses. It says, there were some present at the time who told him, Christ, of course, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate, remember Pilate now, the one in charge uh, as kind of this, um, uh, this governor, if you will, of the region having the authority of Rome that 
was now entrusted and invested in him to be able to oversee the Jewish people. The Galileans were the northern Israelites here, and they were going down to Jerusalem as they did for the sacrifices in the temple. And uh, it was the one time we know that they would sacrifice their own animals, unlike when they brought their animals to the priest, but you would have in the Passover that uh, practice of having that lamb live with you and then sacrifice that lamb. Well, as they were involved in that, we assume at the Passover, Pilate, it says, mingled their uh, blood with the sacrifices. So they're killing animals here at the Passover, and here comes Rome flexing its muscles and uh, in an evil, unjust uh, slaughter of people that were just, in this case, trying to worship God in faithfulness to the law, they are killed. And so his answer here in verse number two, now think about that. He hears about this great inequity. What is his response? Here's his response. It's the response we so badly need. The eternal, significant, weighty response of someone who is heavenly minded, who has a perspective about the realities of heaven and earth. And we need to understand where Jesus would go when he hears about something like that. And here it is. He answers verse two. He answered them and he said, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this way? Now, they were not bringing this news to Christ to talk about how evil the Galileans were. I'm sure this was a statement to try and get Jesus to throw Pilate under the bus and talk about what an injustice it was, not only that Pilate would do this kind of thing and murder people, but that uh, he was even in charge of the Jewish people. And yet Jesus says, let's think about the Galileans that died here. And you think about it in terms of, man, that's a terrible thing. What happened to them? And he says, do you think they were worse sinners than any of the other Galileans because they suffered like this? No, I tell you, verse 3, but unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. Verse 4, or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Three simple points today, and I just want you to jot these down. Let's start with the first one here, just by looking at verse 1 and verse 4. We've got two scenes here. One is the injustice of personal evil being foisted upon people here that did not, at least humanly speaking, deserve to die. And you have here a tower falling on people and 18 people dying. You have the natural evil in the world. I mean, whether it was the building codes or how it was put together or maybe a minor uh, trembler, an earthquake, whatever it was, the natural evil of something like this happening where no one was behind the scenes pulling those bricks down. Uh, you've got these two situations that remind us of how dangerous, how terrible, and how evil this world is. And I just want you to jot that down as though you need the reminder. Number one, remember our world is evil. There's going to be people perpetuating evil acts, and there's going to be evil circumstances that befall people. There are evil people producing and perpetuating evil acts on other people, and they will suffer unjustly like these worshipers who went to, to Jerusalem from Galilee to present their sacrifices, and they were killed by a bloodthirsty leader. Terrible. And then you have 
this tower falling, which reminds us that all kinds of terrible things can happen. I think of that earthquake in Nepal that killed 9,000 people. And you think about that disaster, you think, oh, this world is a, is a dangerous and terrible place. There's natural evil, there's individual and personal evil, and that evil affects people that did not sign up to die under a pile of rubble when a tower falls in them. Or people that are going about their business doing something in Jerusalem when traveling all the way in a pilgrimage and faithfulness to God's law, here is Pilate killing them and slaughtering them. So the evil in our world needs to be remembered. And not hard for us looking at our headlines coming off of COVID-19 and then seeing the things that we've seen here recently in our headlines and to know this, we live in an evil, sinful world. Uh, the, the, the killing is going to continue the wars and rumors of wars. And Jesus isn't sitting here saying, let's Let's stop all this, although we all want evil to stop. He's recognizing that this needs to be a platform for a lesson we all need to learn, and it's critical that we learn it. But he simply affirms the fact when they just bring one story to him, he brings another story to them. Look at the evil in the world. I think of all the people that were killed in, in last year's, not, the, not this last Easter, but the Easter before 2019 in April, when in Sri Lanka on Easter, do you remember that story? When 259 Christian worshipers were killed and slaughtered in, in bombings there. I think about the people that have killed people in our society, like Saddam Hussein, who is, who is credited, uh, notoriously so, with killing a quarter of a million people, 250 million people, or 250,000 people, a quarter of a million people. I think about, you want to talk about the injustice and the bloodthirsty culture. Think about the aborted babies in our culture, 125,000 per day, right? We're, we're over 5 million a day in our, in our global society, right? We're pressing a million, depending on whose stats you believe, every single year just in our country alone. Uh, the killing that is bloodshed, the injustice, the inequity, it's everywhere. And you're going to read about it now. You're going to read about it next month. You're going to read about it next year. You're going to read about it 10 years from now. And of course, Jesus is going to say, hey, you should not commit or per perpetrate acts of evil. But in this passage, he reads the headlines, or at least hears the headlines reported to him. And then he goes further and says, well, think about that tower. Think about the tower that fell on those people. I think about the Spanish flu coming you know, into COVID-19 and we look back historically at what that did. It's reported that it killed 50 million people, a little invisible virus. And you think about, this is horrible, right? And, and we sit, hip, sit back today and think, this is crazy, the kind of world that we live in, bad things happen. And a lot of people are now just like fainting with, wow, this is, this is terrible. It is terrible. It's terrible that there is natural evil, and it is terrible that there are people that perpetrate evil on other people. It is terrible. It is sinful, and Jesus simply underscores it. As a matter of fact, when he says, you think you've seen something there? Look over here. That's why I want to talk about the fact that when you see evil perpetrated, I want to stand back and say, not only are we all against it, obviously, but when you stand back and say, look at all the other evil that's perpetrated. Look at the bloodthirsty culture we have, the culture of convenience right, and, and comfort, to not only exterminate people politically when we don't like them or to murder people or the murder rates in our big cities across our country, whether it's the police brutality that's in the headlines or whether it's bombings, the suicide bombers, the Paris bombings. I think of all the things that have taken place just in the last 10 years that remind us of evil people with evil intent doing evil things. And I think we need to stop and say, okay, when Jesus hears the headlines, he goes, not only that, 
Think about this. I mean, I want the comfort of, well, you know, we can fix this. Let's do something about it. Let's, uh, let's, let's celebrate the good. Let's, let's band together to fix the problem. And Jesus wants to say, I don't know that you realize how evil the world is. I don't think you realize how bad it is. Even when someone comes to him and says, good teacher, Matthew 19. He has to stop and say, wait a minute. No one's good but God alone. I mean, think about that. No one is good but God alone. Everyone else is bad. All have sinned, Romans 3, right? And, and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone is a sinner. And this is the terrible reality that I don't think we feel the way that we ought to. We see a headline. We think if we can fix this, things will be good. Remember this. It's bad and it's really bad. And the Bible says, unfortunately, the forecast is going from bad to worse. Well, this is an encouraging sermon, sermon Pastor Mike. Let me remind you that the passage is pointing to something that is the ultimate fix and remedy and perspective building act. And that is the, as uncomfortable as it is, the thing that the Bible here in the perfect response of Christ to the evil headlines of the day, here's what he says. Look, look back at it with me in Luke chapter 13. He says in verse two, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans? Think about it. You, wait a minute. Pilate is the evil one. He's the sinner. No, he is. You're right. He's the sinner. But think about these that were killed. You might even sit back and go, well, man, they, they, maybe there was a lot going bad in there. They, they were probably, you know, doing things secretly and they were sinful. And, 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 you know, maybe even you're thinking they must have been harboring evil in their own life or hypocrisy. And people would think that. And he said, well, wait a minute. Not only have had a bad guy doing bad things, but even the people that happened to, you might stand back and think, well, I don't know, maybe there was something there that, that caused these Galileans to receive the anger of Pilate, if not from Pilate's perspective, maybe from God's perspective. I mean, it's like in, in John 9, when they saw this, this uh, blind man, they said, well, was it something his parents did or maybe something he did? Maybe this thing in his life is because of something that God saw was displeased within this person. And, and Jesus turns this all back and says, I want you to think about your life. What about you? Do you think that they're worse than anyone else? Or verse number four, what about the tower that fell on these people and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others that lived in Jerusalem? Jesus is saying this, if you're taking notes, number two, you need to grieve the sin in you. That's what he's doing. He's turning around and saying to people that are outraged by Pilate killing these people, and you feel sympathy for those who died. You feel sympathy for those who had the tower fall on them. And here's Jesus saying, let's talk about your sin. Let's think about your sin. Let's think about everyone in Jerusalem and everyone in Galilee. And let's think about the fact that there's sin in you and that sin is grievous and there's no one righteous but God. And you need to think about the sin in your own life. And we are not good at that. Matter of fact, keep your finger here. Turn or call up the passage, if you would, from Romans chapter 2. I want you to look at this passage. Our natural tendency is to not do what Jesus is calling us to do, and that is to see the universality of sin and evil in our lives. We are not good at that. We are great at seeing evil in other people. We're great at seeing evil in Pilate. We're great at even thinking, well, there's something nefarious going on with those Galileans. Or we think maybe when this natural evil takes place, those people that are dying from this disease or dying from this accident or this earthquake or whatever it is in natural evil in the world. I'm, you know, I'm glad God doesn't see me that way. Look at this text starting in verse number one, Romans chapter two, verse one. Therefore, 
You have no excuse, O man. And if you want to look at the context here, we've talked about God's righteous decrees, right? The fact that God is a God who has established what's right, but people are going headlong into their own sin and he's handing them over to their sin. That's what the end of chapter one is all about. Now in chapter two, he says, therefore, you have no excuse. He's writing here to these folks in Rome saying, every one of you who judges, you see the wrong in others. And, and he kind of set them up for this. Look at these bad people. He's talking about some of the worst immoral sins in chapter one. People that are worshiping the creatures, talking about sexual immorality and homosexuality. He says, listen, you think that you're okay? You can look at them and see their sin? He says, for in passing judgment, middle of verse 1, on another, you condemn yourselves because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Oh, you maybe haven't done it to the same extent, right? But you are categorically in the same category because there's only two categories. There's the sinless and there's the sinner. And guess what? You're in the sinner category and there are things that you do that deserve the wrath of God, and the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And in this text, there is a reminder that if you can see the sin in others, you may be good at looking that direction, but all you'd have to do is put a mirror up, and if you're honest, you'd say, I see the same problem in me. Do you think anyone else, not only receiving the bad and the, and, and, and the, and the suffering, but what about those perpetuating it? Even them, do you think that you are in some other category than they are? You're not. Oh, we can slap our fists down and say, look at that sinner. And you can say, well, I don't think I'm as bad as that person. Think about it, though. Your ability to critically look at people doing wrong things shows us that you have the ability to discern what is wrong. And if you could just take that same kind of discernment and turn it back on yourself, you could recognize that God would have you grieve the same kinds of problems, the same categorical problems in your own life that are in the lives of others. He says this, he says in verse 2, For we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. He says, Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? I mean, is that not exactly what Jesus is saying over in Luke 13? I mean, do you think you're going to escape? Do you think that maybe because your sins are of a different extent or maybe don't make the headlines that you do not deserve the very same things? which is the judgment of God coming on you, whether it's the end of some uh, evil uh, act that's foisted on you by some evil intended person or with evil, with evil intent or some natural evil being the victim of some kind of hurricane or some kind of tornado or typhoon or whatever it might be. Do you think you're going to escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume, he says, on the riches of his kindness and forbearance, holding back what we deserve, the punishment, and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent hearts, right? you're not confessing your sins. You don't see the same kinds of issues in your life. You're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. There's a day when those who do not recognize their sin and grieve their sin are going to encounter the judgment of God upon their lives. And the reality is when everyone else is easily pointing out the sin in other people's lives, God would have us think, what are you doing in looking at your own life? Do you not recognize that your ability to discern injustice, your ability to discern inequity, your ability to see any kind of sin that you rightly recognize in other people, that you could look back in your own life and see those same kinds of things? And that's the kind of thing that should make us shudder. As a matter of fact, more than shudder, it should make us grieve. And we should realize that because we have not yet been judged, 
that because of the kindness and the forbearance and the patience of God, that that kindness is to lead us to repentance. And that starts with seeing our sin for what it is. You seeing sin in others should help you see your sin in you. And that is the number one responsibility when you see evil in this world. It starts with looking in the mirror and saying, I too am a sinner. And to get honest enough in your grief to repent. You know, there's a lot of people that are easy and quick to scoff at the sins of other people. It's the wise person who's able to turn away those things. It says in verse number eight, when you recognize that we are not the ones who are free from sin, even as Jesus in that story that is there in John 8, the idea of us recognizing, can you see the sin in yourself? It doesn't mean we're laissez-faire. It doesn't mean we don't want justice. It doesn't mean that we're not caring about the judicial system. It doesn't mean that we don't hold people accountable. But we start with saying, we recognize our own sinfulness. We take a look at our ability to critically analyze someone else's moral faults and we turn that back on ourselves. We find the grief in our own lives and we recognize our sin problem that we're a part of a fallen humanity that has a sin problem that should be recognized first and foremost by ourselves. Sadly, some of us fail to see our sin to the extent that we turn that grief into real repentance. The kindness of God and not judging us yet should lead us to genuine repentance, not just the initial repentance that brings us to Christ in adoption and regeneration, but the kind of repentance that continues on in our Christian life every single day. I mean, you really do that. When's the last time you really poured out your heart in confession and penitence over the grief that you have in your own life for sin? It should lead to repentance, a kind of repentance that says, I am really taking seriously the sin in my life and I'm waging war against it. Turn to one more passage before we get back to Luke chapter 13. I want you to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse number 8. As we grieve the sin in ourselves, make sure it gets to the right place, to where there's a genuine doing business with God, not just about the totality of my life at the outset of my Christian life, but with the everyday things that we do that displease a holy, holy holy God. Think about that. The thrice holy God of, Je of Isaiah chapter 6. We offend him every single day. And we are sinners at the core. And we need to recognize our need for repentance. That repentance that's going to bring grace and salvation and the kind of mercy of God and regeneration. Having our sins cast on the cross. Look at verse 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 8. He wrote a letter. He was calling out their sin. He said, even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. And I don't regret this. If we really turn our attention on ourselves and we feel that grief about our sin. Though I did regret it, for I see that I, my letter grieved you. And there's a natural side of our heart. We don't like pointing out sin and we don't like pointing out sin even in ourselves. But that grief is only for a little while. Verse 9. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, verse 9, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. It wasn't a bad thing. It was a positive. It was an asset. For godly grief, verse 10, produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. There's a lot of worldly grief out there. There's a lot of grief over things not being the way that they should. But what we need to do in every circumstance is whatever the headlines might be, and we need to say, those headlines lead me to introspection. They lead me to saying, search me, try me, look in my own life, grieving over my own sin. And to realize that what that needs to bring is repentance in my heart, a kind of repentance that leads to salvation. And that then opens my eyes, not to short-term issues, but to long-term issues. Do we want short-term issues to be there? Of course. 
but we want the long-term issues. We need to care about the realities of what is said in our passage, and I want to go back to it now, Luke chapter 13. When he says in this passage about the reality of what we need to do or what hangs in the balance and what, what lies beyond if we do not repent. And I know it's repeated here, and I, I don't even need to list it twice in verses 3 and 5, but let me list it twice. Verses 3 and 5. He says it twice. We emphasize it twice. We're going to read it twice. After saying the Galileans, you know what, who were the victims of a really cruel and sinful man named Pilate, who would eventually give the thumbs down to Christ and have him crucified. He says, unless you repent, being a sinner too of the same category, maybe not the same caliber or to the same extent, but being a sinner, you need to recognize, you need to repent or you will likewise perish. Look at verse 5. After he talks about the tower that fell on these people in Jerusalem, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Perish is not about the concern that Christ has about our death. Matter of fact, Paul says there's a reality in terms of our death that is a freeing reality for us as Christians. It's a sad reality for non-Christians, but it's the first death of a biological separation of our biological bodies and our spirit. The real death that the Bible says we ought to be concerned about is the second death. Matter of fact, turn to this passage. We're not far from it in the Gospel of Luke. He says, I tell you, verse 4, friends, do not fear. This is Luke 12, 4. Do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, they have nothing more they can do. Okay, and, and, and again, there's nothing wrong with us saying we don't want murderers, right? Of course we don't want murderers. But don't fear them. Ultimately, that should not be your fear. Don't fear, because after they kill you, there's nothing else they can do. But I will tell you, I warn you, he says, whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed the body, because he's the one who can make the tower fall on you or have that evil man snuff your life out. He says, after he's killed the body, he has authority, and he's the only one with only one with this authority, to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Let's stop there before we go any further. That is the fear we all ought to have. It ought to be the fear that grips our own heart, that leads us to sorrow and grief over our sin and repentance. And it ought to be the kind of grief that leads us to campaign for something eternally important. And even before I read the rest of us, can we put this down, number three? We need to campaign against, you ready? Going to hell. That's what we need to campaign against as the ultimate campaign. That needs to keep you up at night. That needs to be the thing that makes you think, wow, that's the thing I fear. I fear it for myself. I fear it for Pilate. I fear it for the victims of Pilate, the Galileans. I fear it for the people on whom the Tower of Siloam fell. And I fear it for myself. Because God holds the keys to life and death and heaven and hell, and I want to make sure I'm right with Him. And if I get right with Him, as the next passage is going to remind me, that His love for me, His oversight for me, His concern for me, as He tells His disciples, is that five sparrows are sold for two pennies, and they, not one of them is forgotten before God. There's not a person that dies apart from the purview of God's sovereignty. Right? There's not a bird that dies without God's oversight. We've talked about that in the last few weeks. And even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not for your more value than sparrows. So if I can solve the problem of fearing God and He becomes my Redeemer, then all I've got left is fear for other people. The fear for them falling in the hands of the living God. The fear of them having the consuming fire get a hold of them and having no payment for their sins. That is the thing that we ought to all be concerned about. When Sodom Hussein kills 25 or 250,000 people, Right? When we see people in a, in, a, in a bombing in Sri Lanka die, we should care about and be horrified by the fact that they're going to face their God 
and whether they're going to have their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life and be clothed in the righteousness of Christ and have the advocate of the Son representing them before the Father, or whether or not they're going to hear, depart from me, I never knew you. He says, that's the one you want to fear. We want to make peace. You got two real stark pictures here. You got people that are fearful of being killed and fearful of human uh, uh, violence, and yet they don't fear the real fear they should have, and that's God. But once they realize that, if they could repent, they can have the salvation. They can have the forgiveness. They can have the acceptance to where that God who could throw them in hell has the authority to throw them in hell. The judge becomes their redeemer and their savior. And that is a switch that changes everything. And then all I have left to fear is what's going to happen to other people. All I have to fear is, are you ready to meet your maker? And that sounds so old-fashioned, but it is so accurate. It is so true. It is so biblical. It's so pertinent. It's so timely. And you and I need to get to the place right now where we say, that is the thing that should get me out of bed. It should move me into whatever circumstance I can be in. And I should go seriously hard about the reality of this truth. That's what I got to campaign about. That is what I need to get all in the angst about. As a matter of fact, I'll put it this way. Romans chapter 9. Turn there real quick. I mean, we're turning a lot of passages, but this is good. I want you to see this with your own eyes. Romans chapter 9. Here's the Apostle Paul. And you want to talk about what he fears. He no longer fears God as his judge, right? He knows that he has a great concern for God and pleasing God as his father. He has that kind of fear. But his concern in his own heart is for other people. The fear that he has is for the other people that he's trying to reach with the gospel. Look at this, verse 1. Romans 9, 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. That's a lot of things to say, wow, this is really true. Of course it's true. He's telling the truth, but he's about to say something you wouldn't think was true of the Apostle Paul. I mean, here's him saying, rejoice always, right? He's written all this from prison in, in Philippi. Uh, uh, to the Philippians, rather, as he sits in Rome, and he's always talking about joy. You think he's a happy guy to hang out with. Well, here's one thing that's in his heart. He says, I have verse two, great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. You know what I'm really concerned about? Concerned about all these people. Verse four, these Israelites, to them belong the adoption in the covenantal fact that God has taken uh, Abraham's children and made a covenant with them, and the glory and the covenants, all the, all the, the, the promises of the law of, of Israel, of Moses, and the giving of the law and the worship and the promises, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is Christ, right? From their lineage, who is God over all, who is blessed forever. The idea here is that Paul is freaked out and pained and in anguish. Look at it again, verse 2. A great sorrow and unceasing anguish in, in my heart. You know the problem he has? The thing that he is fearful about? The thing that he concerns himself with? The thing that tears him up? Is that people are lost and going to hell. That's what he's concerned about. We need to grasp the reality of that. Matter of fact, I want to show you that. Go to, go to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, here is Jesus talking about the thing that ought to keep you up at night. The thing that ought to motivate you to speak up. I mean, you know right now in our world, people are willing to go out there and risk their lives, right, to, to talk about and, and, and yell about and, and get riled up about bad things. And you know what? Bad things are bad things, and I'm against all the bad things, and I'm for all the good things. But what Paul wants us to do is to be passionate about the gospel. I can't even get people to politely talk about heaven and hell. I can't even get them to bring it up in a conversation because they're afraid they might offend someone. Look, at one is far more important, eternally important. Right? I know we should concern, concern ourselves with people that can kill the body, but I'm not going to fear that. The big issue is those who can, the one who can kill the body, there's only one, and have the authority to cast us into hell. 
This is hard, I realize. Difficult, but we need to see it. And I want you to see it in Luke chapter 16, verse 19 and following. There was a rich man, Jesus says, Luke 16, 19, who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores. You know the story. You know where I'm going, but take a look at it as though you never read it before. Who was dressed, or who desired rather to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. So there he is, rich mansion, gates out in front. Here's a beggar. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. He's not healthy. He's not rich. He didn't eat enough food. His stomach is hungry. The poor man dies and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Abraham is obviously in a place of blessing and God's protection and in a good place. And so he gets to go to a place of comfort and blessing. The rich man also died and he was buried. His body at least was. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he, this is Jesus talking, right? And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. By the way, stop and think about people. Think about people you talk to, people you see on the internet, people you watch on YouTube, people that you run into as you go out and shop for your food this week. And recognize Jesus is saying, here is a reality. You're either going to one place or you're going to the other place. You're either going to be in a place of comfort or you're going to be in a place of torment. That's the word here. Jesus taught this. Matter of fact, the strongest emphasis on hell in the Bible comes from the teaching of Jesus Christ himself. He says, send Lazarus. I see him over there in a place of blood. Let him dip the end of his finger and let him come and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. And Abraham said, verse 25, Child, remember that in your lifetime you receive good things, things he didn't share, and Lazarus in the manner, in like manner, bad things. That's what he got. That was his lot. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And of course, there's got to read between the lines. It's not that the poor go to heaven and the rich go to hell. That's not the picture. The picture is those clearly that trust in God in this case, in the Old Testament times, they go to heaven. In New Testament times, of course, after the Gospels, they trust in Christ. That's the transition that's going on in the Gospels. But in this text, right, here is a sign that this man that had all this stuff had no heart and relationship with God. He wasn't, as Jesus tells in other parables, rich toward God. And so he closed his heart. He had no concern in helping the poor people here. And so what happens? He goes to a place of punishment. And Abraham says, listen, that's the way it is. Not only that, he's not coming over to give you any relief. Verse 26, look at it. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed. A wall, a, a pit, a, 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 you know, the, the Grand Canyon is between us. In order that those who would pass, who'd want to pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, this is the rich man now, Father Abraham, he says, to send him to my father's house. Let Lazarus go back, let him come back to life, let him go there. I know his body is there, you know, buried. I want you to send Lazarus' spirit back to animate his body, bring him back from the dead. He says, I got five brothers, verse 28, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Man, I hope that just sends a shiver up your spine. You know, here is a man that is lost, and he knows that he's lost, and he's just been told there's no not being lost. You are in punishment, and you're going to be punished because you've met your maker. You didn't trust in God. You didn't put your confidence in God. And so what happens now? As a lost person who's never grieved his sin, never repented of his sin, you're in a place where you can't get out of, and you're begging 
Abraham to send Lazarus back so that maybe you can convince your brothers through the miraculous sign of someone coming back from the dead. And here's what Abraham says. They got the Bible. And by the way, that is your job to amplify that message. You are to campaign against people going to hell. That is your calling. That is what you are tasked to do. That is your number one thing that you in your life are called to do to keep people from going. You're to give that, that Moses, that law and the prophets, you're to give it a voice. They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, verse 30, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. A lot of double entendre there, speaking of the fact that Christ would rise from the dead. And I'm going to the streets. I'm telling the people. I'm getting out there in my neighborhood. I'm talking to my friends at the gym. And I'm saying, listen, you have got to get right with God. Think about this. You need Christ. He has risen from the dead. And you need to put your trust and confidence in him or you're going to hell. That's the problem. And that ought to be the thing that grips you, that drives you, that motivates you, that makes you speak up. Everything else is a distant second. Are there other things to be all for? Absolutely. Right? But they should pale in comparison. I got an entire world talking about a lot of things that they're all for. I mean, there's a lot of, of charities. There's a lot of causes. There are a lot of campaigns. There's a lot of things. But here's the thing the world is never going to campaign for. Making sure that you don't go to hell making sure that the neighbors and friends don't go to hell. That's my job. That's your job. We are tasked to do that kind of work. You've got to understand how big a deal this is. In 2 Thessalonians, that's another good one we should look at. Do we have any time? Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He says, verse 3, he's talking about people that are saved. He says, we ought to always give thanks to you. To God, rather, for you. We should always give thanks to God for you, brothers. It is right for us, verse 3. This is 2 Thess 1.3. It is right for us, he says, um, as is right, rather, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of everyone of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of, of God for your steadfastness in faith and your, in all your persecutions and the afflictions you're enduring. You're going through hard times. The world's full of evil. You got people like Pilate. You've got natural disaster. You got evil all around, but you're enduring it all and they hate you because you're followers of Christ. You're enduring it. But this is evidence. All this conflict all the evil, all the evil that's pitted against you. It's conflict. As you stand up for Christ, as you speak about heaven and hell, like they derided John the Baptist for telling them to repent or they were going to suffer the winnowing fork and be thrown into the fire. He says, their opposition of you is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Well, when's that going to happen? When I get out there and punch them in the face, no, 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 it's going to happen when God brings his judgment and God is going to judge them and he's going to grant relief to you who are afflicted. What are they afflicted for? Because of the son of man, because they're a, their alliance with Christ, because they are willing to say the hard things about sin and judgment and righteousness and salvation and the cross and about repentance and heaven and hell. These are the things as they brought the message of the truth to their generation, they pushed back hard against them. And he's going to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. And Paul was suffering as well. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. Is that, I mean, does that, does that become a flat line for you? Or is that something that you care about? Is that something you even believe anymore? 
I mean, this is the thing that Satan constantly attacks, that there's nothing beyond this life, that all that matters is rearranging all the furniture on the deck of this sinking ship. Hopefully we can make it a little better before we die. That is not what it's about. It is about eternity. It's about the sinking of this life and after that standing before God. And he says, one day he will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God. To those, he says, who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. How hard are you working to get people to obey the gospel? What's the gospel? The good news is you don't have to go to hell. That's what you should be campaigning for. They will suffer punishment of eternal destruction. How long is this going to last? Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. When He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among those who have believed. There's the difference. Two two groups, two people groups. You've got saved and unsaved. You've got those who are going to be blessed, who are going to be in a place of blessing, and those who are going to be punished. Those who are going to suffer the consequences of their sin. That's it. Right? You've got those who are going to suffer the eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, and you're going to have us who are marveling at Him and finally seeing our faith be sight because our testimony to you was believed. And that's what we want. We want to see other people believe it. To this end, he says, verse 11, We always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every good work of faith by His power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him according to, and it's what this is all about, the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of our God. Paul loved that phrase, that word, because that's the word that embodies what this message is all about. I'm saying to non-Christians, you do not have to go to hell. I should have unceasing anguish in my heart about the reality of the problem. And I should recognize that this is my task. This is my mission. There is a solution. It's found in the written word of God. And I'm to give it a voice. And I'm to get out there and persuade people. (laughs) So a lot of people trying to get me to campaign about something that most of every person actually, to every last person knows. And in my world, the, the echo chamber of me saying some things in a world that is applauding everything I'm saying. Versus me saying, here's a message that is needed because it has eternal ramifications. And if people don't get it, they will be eternally lost. They will be punished eternally, day and night, forever and ever, the Bible says, because of their sins. Now, if you don't believe that, then what are we doing here? But if we do believe it, this is a serious issue. One last passage. Turn you to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Repent or you'll likewise perish. I hope that's true for you. And you say, well, I've done that. Great. Now what? Let's rearrange the furniture on the deck of the sinking ship. No, no. Great. If you can walk by it and, and straighten it out, great. What we need to do is make sure other people get in the lifeboat. And how should you feel about that? Let's start in verse 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Familiar passages. I hope this is not boring you. This is redundant to some of you, but I hope it doesn't feel redundant. It needs to be the enlightened, rekindled passion of your heart. 2 Corinthians 5.11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, which again, I don't even know who has that anymore. Who fears the Lord? To fear the Lord is to fear the one who can kill the body and has the authority to cast that body and that soul in hell. That's the fear of the Lord. And knowing it, we persuade others. That's the whole point. I want to campaign against people going to hell. But what what we are is known to God. And I hope it's known also to your conscience. You know who we are. We know what we're trying to do. We're not commending ourselves to you again by giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who... He says, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you a cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about 
what's in the heart. That's what matters. There's the temporal, there's the exterior, there's the stuff here, or there's, are people right with God? Because everyone is either right with God or they're not right with God, and our job is to get them right with God through the gospel. If we're beside ourselves, you think we're crazy, and people will think we're crazy if we campaign against people going to hell. If we call people to rent, they're going to think we are beside ourselves, which is the old idiom to say you're crazy. You're just not in your right mind. That's the picture. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. If it works and you understand it and you, you get it, you see the wisdom and the power of God, as he said in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. Why? Because the love of Christ controls us. Because we've included this, that one has died for all, therefore all died. That's all that matters. Everything that matters is Christ dying for our sins. And he died for all, which, by the way, that's the conclusive uniformity of the humanity. There's one race of people. There's one group of people. And that group of people, that humanity, Christ died so that we can see humanity saved. Not going to happen. Matter of fact, it's going to be a very small group, small number, narrow road, small gate that leads to life. And few are those who find it. But we're trying to drag as many people as we can. Look, keep reading. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake, died and was raised. It, 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 that's what it's about. Jesus could have campaigned against Pilate. He could have campaigned against Rome. He could have campaigned against the, the building codes in Jerusalem. He was concerned about campaigning, about people not perishing. We don't want to live for ourselves. We want to live for him who died and was raised. That's the message that we are trying to present to our world. Verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. We don't care about those things. What matters is what matters to everyone from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and every group of people. Even though we regarded Christ that way once, like a, he's this Jewish Messiah, and he's you know about from Israel, and we looked at his external. No, we don't think that way anymore. We regard him thus no longer. We don't think about him like that. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, that's all that matters. New creation. There are two groups, right? It's not that group and this group and that ethnic group and that. It's two groups. It's saved and unsaved. That's all that I'm concerned about. That's all you should be concerned about. Ultimately, that's the concern. Are we for the right things? We're for the right things. We're for the good things. We're positive in voting and, and absolutely for the good things. But here's the issue that matters eternally. This is the eternal matter. That we recognize that we have a new creation in every person that puts their trust in Christ. They see their sin. They grieve over their sin. And they become... Christians, the old has passed away, middle of verse 17, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. All this is from God, verse 18, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Are you right with God? Are you really a Christian? Do you have that eternal perspective? Well, then he gave you the ministry of reconciliation. That's your ministry, to reconcile people to God. That's your, that's your calling. That is that Christ, that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Right? That's what we want. Forgiveness, the mercy of God, the grace of God. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. This is not lateral reconciliation. This is vertical re reconciliation. Does it help us laterally and horizontally connect? Sure it does. But what matters is that I am right with God. And that is the... Sorrow and unceasing anguish in our hearts is when we don't see people brought to faith in Christ. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation that Christ, that in Christ God was reconciling the world of not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are his ambassadors. That is the point. That is the whole point. You are his ambassadors. 
You're ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. What should we be known for? Here it is. This is the message. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That should be the message people are sick of hearing from us, that we are calling them to be reconciled through Christ to God. He's the only way, the way, the truth, the life, John 14, 6. No one's going to come to the Father except through Him. And if you don't come to the Father, if you don't repent, you will likewise perish. For our sake, verse 21, He, God, made Him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. And if we are the righteousness of God, He draws us close. He makes us His own. That's the message. That's the campaign. That's the passion. That's the focus. That's what we're here for. That is our task. You are his ambassadors. We have a message. Through this whole COVID-19 thing, this weird shutdown, I can't get to preach. I don't get to be with you. And I'm, I'm not in person and I hate that. And I've been thinking through every week, what do we need? And there's so many weeks I thought, wow, what we need is a passion for the gospel. I think, well, that's what we've been doing in Acts before we left, which seems like forever ago, three months ago. And, and, I'm thinking, yeah, we've got a lot more of that coming in Acts, so I just don't go there. I couldn't help but think we got to go there this week. We have to go there. I need you to be passionate about the gospel. It starts with us realizing our world is evil. We don't give it allowance. We don't applaud it. We don't say, yay, let's just let it happen. But we recognize the evil in the world should lead us to grieve sin in ourselves. And if we grieve the sin in ourselves and it leads us to repentance and salvation, then I got a campaign. And the campaign and the mission for you, the task for you, the message for you, the thing you cannot be silent about or you will not honor Christ and you will not have devotion for Christ is whether or not you're bringing a message of repentance and reconciliation to God, to the people that you know. That is what we need to campaign for more than anything else. It is the thing that if we don't share this message, no one's going to share the message, right? God didn't ask the angels to go into the sky and, you know, write out the gospel in our generation. He's called you and me to share that message. The injustice of the cross ought to be the thing that we talk about more than anything else. That is, it says, and Peter says, Peter 3.18, that he died the just, the righteous, for the unjust, for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That is the transaction that people need to hear, the cross of Christ. Paul said, I purpose to know nothing among you but Christ crucified. Let's get back to the message of the gospel. Let's shout it. Let's bring it. Let's persuade people. Let's speak the truth in love that people need Jesus Christ. Because if they don't have Christ, they're going to face a Christless eternity paying for their own sins in the punishment and retribution that their sins deserve. But they can have complete 100% forgiveness right now if they would put their trust in Christ, repent of their sins. And then they can get on board with us and become ambassadors tasked with the message of reconciliation, entrusted with the message of the gospel. That's our job. Let's get serious about it this week. Let's pray. God. Calibrate our thoughts and our minds and our hearts. Get us ready to bring a message to our generation, a message of reconciliation to God, a message that should, as we see people rejecting the gospel, bring us great sorrow, unceasing sorrow, and anguish in our hearts. God, bring us to a place of having our hearts broken over the lost. Perhaps we haven't wept over the lost lately. 
God, get us back to that. I know some of us have beat our heads against the wall with people that are not listening. Help us to find the people that are listening. Help us to find those that are willing to talk. Help us to find that, as we often say around here, that low-hanging fruit, the people that are willing to think about it. I remember some in the book of Acts had mocked Paul when he brought up the resurrection, but others said, we'll hear you later on this. God, get us excited about those people finding the open ear, the heart that you're working on, that we might be able to bring the words of life to them even this week, even now, as we text someone or email someone or pick up the phone and actually call someone or head over to someone's house and we talk to them about their need for Christ. God, let us think about how things are gonna be a million years from now, 500,000 years from now, 50,000 years from now. God, we need to get people's hearts ready for eternity. You got one of two places, there's a great chasm fixed and no one can cross. God, let let our hearts get about get back to stuff and and settled on stuff that matters for eternity, I pray. God, we need your help. Our world needs your help. Our culture needs your help. Our bodies and this disease, we need your help. God, help us, but let us realize just the passion that we ought to have for people coming to faith in Jesus. Maybe today some will because we have gotten serious about our task. So commit ourselves afresh to your mission, the mission of making disciples in this world. I want to get serious about it even today. In Jesus' name, amen.